Hi, my name is Stephen Newton. And I'm Stephen Payne. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Black Ink Red Film. So in Black Ink Red Film, we're going to be taking a look at famous horror and sci-fi novels, how they eventually translated into horror and sci-fi films, and then looking at the pop culture impact and legacy they had afterwards. If you enjoy listening to podcasts that discuss books about horror and sci-fi, then this is a podcast for you. We really hope you'll join us. Look for Black Ink Red Film on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts at. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that lanky northern barbarian, Jeff Goad. Howdy, friends. And this week we have with us a very special guest, Josh of the Chromecast. Hey everybody! Hey Jeff! Hey Hoy! Oh, Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. You know, last last but not least, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the Lord of the lower levels of the Chromecast. There we go. <laughs> Completing our collection. There you go. That's right. <laughs> Collect all three. <laughs> what? Right. Why have you guys put us in these boxes? <laughs> <There we go. laughs> yeah, and I noticed my eyes start getting very red today. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the, all the, the malfeasant sorcery you've been practicing. There it, is, there it is. There it is. Tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming um, and what led you to the fiction that we now call Appendix N. Okay. Um, so uh, as a kid, I was really into The Legend of Zelda for NES. And uh, that sort of opened the door into adventure games and RPGs uh, from the console perspective. So I started playing Final Fantasy Two and Final Fantasy Three for the Super Nintendo. Um, and I didn't really get into tabletop role-playing games until I was uh, uh, in college. And so some friends of mine uh, who played Magic every week, uh, we all sort of just decided, hey, let's, let's try out D&D. And uh, the edition we picked up was third edition. And uh, a friend of mine ran a game and I was a halfling thief and uh, or rogue, I should say, right. um, since we're doing third edition. <laughs> and uh, of course, the first thing I tried to do was steal the party's barbarians uh, sword from off his of back. Course. Of course you did. Uh, <laughs> and I failed. <laughs> um, but you got to start somewhere, right? Right let's, right. let's ease into this stuff. I think you do um, have to play all the basic uh, archetypal roles at some point before you move past them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, and then um, I know that Luke, when he was on, he he mentioned a uh, 3.5 game that that lasted for uh, several years, actually, uh, the same campaign that went on for, for years. And uh, I was a part of that as well. Um, and so my gaming experience has mostly been uh, from using modern D&D systems, or at mm -hmm. least modern for the time. Right, um, right. But... Uh, nowadays, uh, thanks to Luke, uh, I've been playing um, Beckme, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so we use the rule cyclopedia for uh, our Bourbon and Barbarians games that right, take right. place about once a month. Did you find um, 
because uh, a lot of our earlier guests came to it maybe if not with original Dungeons and Dragons, maybe Homeless Blue Box or Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but here you're coming through the video game uh, portal. Did you find that a major sort of um, paradigm shift or, or mental shift in order to get into tabletop? Uh, no, because third uh, edition and 3.5 especially are really crunchy in terms of numbers. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of folks don't like that. But I did at the time. I really did right. like knowing um, my character is really good at stealth. He's 15 good at stealth, right? <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> my, my character is 15 good at stealth. And if I roll a d20 and add 15, that's how good at stealth I am. Um, and so there was something really appealing about that to me. And as I, as time passed and I started to experience older editions of Dungeons & Dragons, I came to appreciate more of the storytelling over the system. Mm-hmm. I think that that particular time period was very much privileged, sort of very um, detailed uh, simulationist games. GURPS was really in its heyday right around that time period as well, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And then, you know, sort of uh, this move back towards um, not necessarily even literally older styles of play, but ideas of the older style of play, right? Because right. a lot of this is, is a mental recreation. A lot of the OSR uh, the new the new OSR people are not necessarily people who were playing at the at the time that this was all happening, right? Yeah. So, um, and then what about the uh, fiction that various influences, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons? Right. So, um, I have always been a big fan of uh, fantasy fiction, and I kind of came in into fantasy fiction at a time when uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time was just everywhere. Um, the height of its popularity, I think. Um, and I really loved those books um, in high school and into college. Uh, I've since kind of grown away from them. Uh, you know, there, there's only so many pages of prophecies and um, um, years between books that you can, you can wait. Right. right. I'm, I'm looking right at George R.R. R. Martin as I say this. Um, <laughs> Poor George. <laughs> uh, and I, I know full well that he doesn't write for me. But right. um, it, it is sort of the drawback f- in, for me in terms of, um, you know, enjoying fiction, um, trying to read these long form novels. And so I started mm-hmm. reading and enjoying short stories. And I came into Appendix N through the horror gateway, I think. Oh, nice. Okay. And so I was a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. Sure. Um, and so I didn't get into uh, Robert E. Howard until uh, John and Luke and I started the Chromecast. I knew who Conan the Barbarian was, uh, mainly through the movie. Right. And um, I knew that he was a comic book character. I knew he had a lot of similarities to He-Man. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I did not know much about Robert E. Howard, the author. Um, And so when we started the Chromecast, it really began kind of as an experiment for us to take a look at the the older pulp roots of some of the things that we enjoy, like comics and horror films and video games and RPGs um, uh, through the, through the Howardian lens. Mm-hmm. And right, uh, right. I've been, and I noticed that you particularly are multimedia that, that you're not just looking at it at as gaming thing or the pure book thing, but as a sort of cultural, uh, you know, entity. Sure. Yeah, you know. exactly. Um, and, and so that's sort of what, 
led me down this path to uh, sitting on the mics and talking with you guys. Nice. Now, had you heard of the Appendix N prior to being on the Chromecast? I had not. No. In fact, um, the Appendix N was not something I was really well aware of until um, you guys and uh, Sanctum Secorum came around. Um, And and so uh, around about that time... um, we looked up what is this appendix N thing. Um, I actually do have a, a first edition dungeon master's guide and it, it was like, Whoa, these here are um, here's a guidebook for all of the different literary roots of this game that we, we enjoy. Um, and so, you know, we, we haven't really used the appendix N as a guide for the Chromecast. Uh, it's been more, um, directed toward Howard and his influences and his successors, but it's remarkable just how parallel uh, those two paths run. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also uh, really fascinated by the the sort of academic uh, sort of you know you guys are all in the sciences and and you're bringing that sort of like oh we're looking at uh, is this a, a an outlier is this like the thing itself yeah <laughs> you know that kind of stuff like that uh, so I'm pretty fascinated by that process that uh, process that you're bringing to you know, as well that, that's just uh, that's that's what we know that's how we were raised <laughs> <laughs> now moving us over towards the book this week we are reading and discussing Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Wizardry. And Josh, which edition of the book are you working with? I, I hang my head in shame for I read the Kindle edition. No, no nothing to be ashamed of. I'm bouncing forth between my Kindle edition because that's convenient for the subway yep. and the White Wolf uh, Lean Times and Lankmar hardcover from the mid 90s, oh, nice. late 90s. So with Mike Mignola illustrations. I so. love that cover. So. And Jeff, nice. which one are you looking at? I've actually got kind of a, a rarer version of it that we're working with today. It's a it's the Mayflower Granada edition. So it's the British paperback Ooh. Uh, that has this different cover here by Peter Elson. And on the cover, it is um, the Grey Mouser climbing up Stardock with the Snow Serpent coming up behind him. Now, the difference is the Snow Serpent in this, in this drawing seems to have a wing – and is not furred. Mm-hmm. So it's not completely accurate to the story, but it's still kind of a fun picture. Right, right. I'm into it. It's funny that none of us actually have the ace, one of the ace covers. So it's I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. We're, we're not going the classic route yeah. this week. So should we do our Hygaxian Absol- word of the day Absol- and then head on over to the library? Absolutely. Our word of the day is? Benison. Benison. And a benison is a blessing. And... Benison is listed in two places, but I'm only going to read one of them. Uh, so on page 135, it says, Heavy leather hangings shut out the stars that had, been, that had but now twinkled down their benisons and dooms. And the reason why I especially liked it is it's the combination of benisons and dooms, which we can talk about more, I guess, in the gaming side. But that's specifically something that Michael Curtis, Michael Curtis lifted for DCC Lankmar as a uh, as a rule, so that's that'll be kind of fun to chat about that later. Uh, so moving into the library, this is a collection of four stories, and I actually listened to a, rec- a recent episode of the Chromecast, and I liked that you guys had a moment where you said like let's let's give the elevator pitch for each for for, for this story. So I'm curious who who wants to go and give us the elevator pitch for what in the witch's tent is, which is the first of the four stories. Hmm. 
That's a tough one. I mean, that's almost a vignette, yes, rather than a story. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very very short. Yeah. But basically, Fafford and Greymaster go up to uh, go up to a witch, and they try to get some information before they go on their long journey. Is basically the gist of it. Um, but there's a whole like scene where they're like running through the the alleyways and uh, stuck inside a tent. There, there's some action there. I was thinking of it as a uh, sort of. Uh, the initiation of the quest, right? Like this is, this is where things really get kicked off. Um, I, I like the vignettes in this, in this book, but um, the real, they're like candy. The real meat is, is in those two, those two larger novellas. Yeah. Cause we have two larger stories and there's a two, two shorter ones, right? one, one right before each of the longer ones. So we have in the witch's tent, then we have Stardock, which the, the short version of that is they, they climb a giant mountain and fight invisible monsters and steal invisible jewels. Yep. Uh, the two best thieves in Lankmar is them trying to sell those jewels. Right. And then Lords of Quarmall are uh, who wants to who wants to summarize Lords of Quarmall for me? Lords Ooh. of Quarmall. Ooh. That's um, <laughs> that's it's, it's half the book. That is um, it's a number of things. It's it's a mega dungeon though. If we're going to talk about it from the gaming point of view, certainly it's, it's a mega dungeon. It's Sefford and Greymaster are separated and don't know that they're both there. Right. Right. Um, and that seems to be an ongoing theme with them going their separate ways and coming back together in unlikely ways. Um, it, it is really like they're an old married couple. They have falling out and then they come <laughs> back together. Um, it is uh, it is at its heart really a relationship story, which is really kind of odd to say. But it is about a bunch of different relationships between two brothers, between the father and their and their sons, um, between slaves and their you know and their masters, and you know and this all in this microcosm society. Um, so it's maybe not exactly what you're expecting at first, but it's, it's pretty, you know, pretty dynamic after, you know, at the end of it. So I don't know. That's not an elevator pitch though. <laughs> no, it, it's not, but it's great, but it, it gives our listeners a chance to, if they haven't read it, yeah. they kind of have a rough idea about like the meat of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So Josh, I'm curious, what did you think of this collection and what did you think of the stories? Uh, I had never read this collection. Um, we read a, a series of about eight or nine stories um, in the Fafford and Grey Mouser uh, series for the Chromecast. Um, mm -hmm. And I think those mostly came from uh, the, the earlier publications. So um, Two Sought Adventure um, or, or uh, uh, what was the other name for that story? Swords, Swords Against Devil, Swords and Devil Tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one. Ilmet and Lankmar. Yeah. So uh, I hadn't read any of the, the later uh, stories from the 60s and beyond. Um, and I liked these, but I did think that that uh, a couple of times, uh, particularly at the beginning of Stardock, that it becomes a little bit ponderous. It, uh, we made the comparison uh, of Liber's writings in Ilmed and Lankmar to wandering uh, through the massive labyrinthine streets of a giant city like Lankmar. It, it just twists and turns and it's it's not really a criticism, but it is complex writing that can be sometimes a little hard to access. This one, I really felt like Stardock was like climbing a mountain. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, toward the beginning, it, it really required a lot of um, effort in terms of concentration just to just to um, keep up with the uh, heroes versus the environment uh, trope that was playing out. Um, that and said, even visualizing, visualizing the, where they were on that mountain was, is really just kind of some really took some focus, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And, and so, you know, having said that, I thought the story was awesome because it took a, a flip turn that I didn't expect. Um, and it turned into kind of a, kind of a sexy story. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, uh, Cormall is, is interesting to me because it was largely written by Harry Otto Fisher. Um, and, uh, we can, we can get to this, I guess a little bit later, but, um, I, I would be interested to to see if you guys um, could spot any of the places that seemed not liberish uh, versus the material in that story that was liberish. Um, I mean, my guess is that Liber was more into sort of clever wordplay, and that I think that Harry Otto Fisher is the one who sort of initially envisioned the characters uh, from my understanding of that, like how he sort of envisioned the core and essential personalities of, of Fafford and the mouser, you know, and that, that would be my guess. I mean, I understand that he wrote the first 10,000 words or so, but I don't know exactly. I didn't count to figure out where the transition was right. or, or if Liber did any rewriting to that, that I don't know. Yeah. I so, don't, I don't know either. And I wasn't sure if it was the first 10,000 words or if it was just 10,000 words of the story, but not necessarily, you know, from the beginning until 10,000 words in, you know, right, I, I right. just, I'm not sure. Right. It is, I think also interesting. I think a, a large, it's, it seems to me, and I don't know enough. I mean, it, cause Harry Artificer is the figure in the shadows and this whole, you know, talk about, you know, their careers. Yeah. It seems to me though, though, from what I know about Liber, that he's both enormously fascinating, but also potentially enormously frustrating to be around for periods of long periods of time. And so that was maybe reflected in the story. I wonder. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. um, one interesting thing about Fisher is that he lived in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Ah. And um, I, I know you guys have talked about Liber and his experience living in larger cities. And mm-hmm. Louisville, while being the largest city in Kentucky, is is not nearly the size of, of any of the places that Liber lived. And I wonder if living in a um, sort of industrial river town versus living in the places where Liber lived kind of um, informed some of the darker nature of this story, because uh, 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 that is um, um, Cormall, because it it is kind of a, a dark story for a Fawford and Gray Master tale. Right, right. And it is sort of, uh, I mean, I don't know what Louisville was like at the time when he started writing, but it is definitely sort of, uh, the Cormall is sort of past its prime. You see this creaking machinery that no one really quite understands in there. And I guess if, if Harry Artificer was writing this in the 30s, I mean, that was obviously the heart of the Great Depression. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what was what Louisville was like then, but it definitely has that feeling of like, things are not quite where they should be. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, did you guys have a favorite story? Hmm. Uh, I'll throw that back at you, but, um, my first impulse would be Cormall just because the amount of things that are going on in there, but there's something brilliant in each one. I mean, I love just the whole turnaround on Fafford and the mouse in the two best thieves in Langmar. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got to say for me, it's really, it's really the short ones, Hmm. the, the, the two best thieves in Langmar and, in the witch's tent are the ones that really resonated with me. Uh, and the two best teams in Linkmar, speaking of sexy, like <laughs> that one was like super sexy. Right. Cause like in the end, like, you know, we've got like the sexy lesbian thieves <laughs> who have like, st- who, who've managed to swindle both Fafford and gray Mouser, which I love. Right, right. <laughs> I also just love that we have our, fr- the first like lesbian characters I've encountered in anything in the appendix N. So that was pretty cool. 
<laughs> and also it kind of cracked me up because also in that same story, actually I had the note written down here. Oh yeah, here it is, page 82. So it also says something about Fafford here. Um, Gray Mouser is giving Fafford a hard time because Fafford only likes to deal with that with like with female with females when he can. Um, and he says, "All know you favor women when possible in business as well as in erotic matters." <laughs> and maybe I'm reading between the lines. When possible, but if he favors women. <laughs> it kind of sounds like he might occasionally like get down with a dude. I, so I had that same thought. Yeah, yeah. So we've got lesbians in the story. We've got hints at Fafford's possible bisexuality. Yeah. And it's just a funny, fun story mm-hmm. where both Cormall and Stardock both really kind of dragged for me. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And that's that's what I was uh, trying to, to get at with my uh, soliloquy earlier. Um, I, I just thought that there were parts of those stories that were somewhat ponderous. Um, mm-hmm. And I think where Liber, at least in terms of the Fofford and Grey Mouser stuff, uh, where he is at his best is when the stories are succinct and, you know, get in, have the adventure, get out. And even when they're longer, like, uh, Hoy, you'll have to help me out with this one. What's the one where Fafford and Greenmaster are separated, but by the end, and they become kind of rivals. And by the end, Fafford is potentially um, Isaac of the Jug. Oh, um, what is that one? It's, it's um, they're both, he's working He's Fafford's at the te- at the temple, and then yeah. Mouse is working for that other thief. Well, I'm forgetting the name of that story, but that's a longer one. But still, even that one was so much fun because, like, this, the action was nonstop, and and Liber's very specific humor was there. Right. I also I feel like I respond to the Fafford and Greymaster stories more when they're in Linkmar. Mm-hmm. I feel like Liber writes Linkmar so beautifully. And I think that it really complements these two characters. And in the shorter stories, when they're outside of Lankmar, it's fine. But whenever we get into these longer stories outside of Lankmar, I tend to struggle more with the text. Right, right. And and it is, uh, as you noted, these are later, these are not the final stories because he wrote into the 70s mm-hmm. and I think maybe like one, one or two stories in the early 80s. Into the 80s, into I the think, yeah. Or something like that. But there's there there are some there are some stories that aren't even technically a part of our project right, because of that. Right. Uh, as prolific as he was, uh, Liber also had periods of writer's block, and he stepped away from the Faf and Gray Mouse stories for almost twenty years before coming back to them in the late fifties. But the sort of the sheer energy that he had of the early stories was not there anymore, and you know he wasn't hanging out with Harry Otto Fisher, you know, day, every day and other people like that. Um, so that may have been sort of what sort of inflected these stories to a certain extent. One of the things I really liked about Stardock was the, the sort of mythical nature of the mountain Stardock itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really made me start thinking about uh, mountains and myths like Mount Olympus and the Prometheus myth, right? That, mm-hmm. that he stole fire from the uh, Hephaestus's forge from Mount Olympus and gave it to the, the, the humans. Um, there's just something so cool about the way Liber takes um, this notion of a mystical mountain and upends it in the way that he does and kind of blends um, fantasy with science fiction. Um, I, I I really loved that aspect of that story. Right. And you're right. There is always an underlying, it's not as explicit 
as some of the other appendix and fiction where you know this is clearly a former alien thing but there's been even a couple other stories like um again what was the one where they were under the sea um when the sea king's away and and the, and the follow-up to that where you're like oh these things may be aliens there's a lovecraft it's a sort of low level lovecraftian element that if you're not looking for you don't you don't necessarily realize it's there as much as you would in howard's fiction in mm-hmm. terms of like what they're dealing with um well, even in Cormall, they reference the older ones, right, right, and, and and you know the wind between the stars, yes, um, and right, and you're thinking about that, and also mountains, and this is kind of something I just thought of. Really, people didn't start climbing mountains just for the sake of climbing mountains until the 19th century, right? Before that, a mountain is this like mystical thing that you you know you suffer with and live with and you walk around the edges of and you live as high as habitable, but you don't go into the unhabitable above the snow line, above the tree line. There's no reason to. Right. Um, that's where the gods live or the demons or the Migo. Right. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, you did feel that, that, that suffering and that peril, but it is physically like you almost feel like, as you say, that slog of climbing up the mountain, you appreciate it, but you're also like, Oh, this is a lot of effort, too. Yeah, and I feel like Liber does really well with character portraits, which is part of part, partly why Lankmar is so fun. But even in Stardock, I feel like Harissa the Ice Cat still has like so much personality and character, even though this this cat doesn't really do a whole lot. It's this cat that they're for the most part just kind of like dragging along with them. But every time Harissa comes up in any kind of meaningful way in the text, it always brought a smile to my face. Right, right. We were just talking about though. Why no dogs? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. One of the things I highlighted was um, this section of uh, Stardock. Uh, they've been climbing forever and um, uh, just sort of bantering back and forth. And uh, Lyra says they were all dog weary, even Cat Rissa. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. That's so great. So since you mentioned you know Rissa as a character, what other characters stand out to you? in this book as being particularly memorable or, you know, horrific, you know, whatever it is, whether that's horrific, humorous, uh, that you just like for some reason. So I, I thought the invisible race of whatever they were, uh, that live in Stardock were pretty interesting, um, and pretty fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, I can't pronounce their names, but I'm going to try, uh, Hiriwi and Kayara maybe. The, the two sisters. The two sisters. Yeah, yeah. Kayara is explaining to, to Mouser, and she says, Hiriwi and I are somewhat like queen bees. And uh, this is in response to Mouser questioning her, like, how how will you have lots of offspring? We, we only, uh, you know, we only had a one one-night stand. How, how uh, we need to have multiple one-night stands, don't we? And, uh, and she's she like, says, don't worry about it. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a queen bee. Um, and I, I just, I loved... Uh, everything about the two sisters, the fact that they're invisible, the fact that they wrap themselves in lace or, or dab themselves in paint to become visible to Fafford and Mouser, um, to sort of just hand waving uh, concerns of Mouser away and giving them a scientific, somewhat scientific explanation for why things are going to turn out um, to be the way that they have described it in terms of their progeny. So I, I liked the sisters. Yeah, they're, I, I agree. They were fun. I think my favorite character, aside from uh, Harissa the Ice Cat, which is probably not actually my favorite character, but I do get a kick out of her, is probably Hasjarl from uh, Lord of Cornwall. Um, Lords of Cornwall. Is it Lords? Lords. Yeah, yeah Lords. Yeah. 
Um, I really dug Hasjarl. I liked I liked the whole the whole thing with uh, him always having his eyes closed and people just like wondering how he could possibly see. Um, I really I dug the way that Liber wrote about his love of torture because clearly when, when a character loves torture, loving torture equals being evil. But Liber almost seems to kind of write the guy as though he's not necessarily evil. He's more just kind of a product of his environment. If you grow up like, you know, kind of without really having access to sunlight in this kind of decadent world with nothing to do, then torturing random people is probably going to be the only fun you're going to get or the only way you can really get any sort of entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from making a fungus wine. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Which I misread at first when he said it was made from red toadstools. I just read that as red toads, as scarlet <laughs> toads, which I also thought was pretty cool. Yeah, but right. then I realized I'd misread it. And actually, real quick, that, was, that wasn't the only time I misread something in this story. I had a real kind of ditzy moment. So in the very beginning of Stardock, we get the prophecy about Stardock. Um, and it's he who scales the Snow King's citadel shall father his two daughters' sons. Right. When I first read that, <laughs> I misread it, and I thought that it meant that if I were to climb the mountain, I will be the father of my two daughters' children. I did too. So. And I'm just like, ew. <laughs> yeah. Why would anybody want that prophecy to come true? Stay away from the mountain. exactly and it wasn't until it came up again about a hundred pages later (laughs) seemingly uh that i read it a second time and i'm like oh no that means that you'll be the father of this of the snow king's daughters right that makes sense okay never mind right right no i i I read it that way i don't think it took me a hundred pages but definitely it definitely was like hmm and then it was like oh another like five or ten pages like wait did i did i read that right and then i was like back like oh i think it means this but i still don't know what it means but i think this is what this is where the comma is you know it is written in a very gygaxian sort of way right like like a first edition module sort of (laughs) right you have to go back and parse it it's like wait did it okay yeah um and speaking of gygaxian this is a great time to trans transfer the conversation over and actually one thing i want to throw out there speaking of gygaxian is there's that great moment where one of the brothers says to the other, the gods hear, hear our words, not our intentions. And that feels very Gygaxian to me. <laughs> that, yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> that moment of like, hey, if, you, if, if the player said your character did that, then I'm sorry, you said it, so you're doing <laughs> right, that. Right. Or the idea of like, oh, you want to cast a wish spell? Yeah. Then I want you to write down exactly word for word what your character, what's coming out of your character's mouth and we'll work with that. It <laughs> <laughs> does remind me of the early days of this. Yeah, when I mean, it was definitely at, at a point when the uh, the DM and the players were more overtly adversarial than they are sometimes yes. today. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure comes from the, the wargaming roots where, mm-hmm. where Gygax comes from. Sure, sure. Sure. And, you know, and then you but just looking bunch, at this, sorry. Go ahead, and you just have a bunch of like young men, you know, wanting to sort of one up each other, period. You know, so that's just that was part of the energy of the game, I guess, at that time. So, Absolutely. Now, Josh, Fafford and Grey Mouse are, are often referred to as maybe the most D&D characters who are kind of having the most D&D adventures, kind of of most of the things in the Appendix N. Uh, so I'm curious, both, I guess, maybe with, with the reading you were doing for the Chromecast initially and, uh, and specifically the reading that we just did now, 
How much did it remind you of 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 D and D of what you know about D and D and your experience with uh, fantasy role playing? Absolutely, I would agree that Fawford and Gray Mouser are the most D and D characters, um, at least that I've read uh, on the appendix in, and and so you know they they seem to be easily transferable. Um, they have adventures in the city. They have these crazy mountain climbing adventures. They're, they're always, uh, after some, uh, MacGuffin, whether it's jewels or, um, you know, uh, they, they've been, uh, uh, placed under a, a geese and they're traveling the world, trying to satisfy the spell that they're under. Um, it, I mean, come on in, in, uh, the Lords of Cornwall, um, uh, gray mouser is given a spell scroll and, right. and is able to cast this, this crazy high level spell that either, <laughs> uh, works as, um, as was intended, but not explained to gray mouser or it misfired right. one or the other. Right. right. Um, or, I, the, or he literally is asking around and says, Hey, are you all sorcerers of the first rack? Yeah. Yeah. Of course we yeah. are. <laughs> but, but the best part about that is he didn't tell them why he was asking them. He didn't exactly. say that's good because otherwise you'll die. Uh, he's right. just like, Oh, <laughs> okay. I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> right. Yeah, and one thing I really love about that spell too is like we also don't know the 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 distance that the spell works. Right. So we also don't know did all of um oh, what's his name? Gawain? Uh, Gwaze. Gwaze. Yeah. Did all of Gwaze sorcerers survive because they actually were sorcerers of the first rank or did they survive because they were out of the spell's range? Uh, uh, we Hass don't Charles, know. Has Charles, Has Charles uh, sorcerers. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Oh. I love the Evivis's reaction too when she comes in, she just sees those little piles of ash and all the loincloths and she's like, "Oh, not even a tooth." Yeah. <laughs> 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 Although that was one moment that bugged me though cuz it did take it took Mouser too long to figure out what had happened there. Yeah. I feel like is because one thing I dug is I dug that part of the part of the the rules of the spell is you had to have your eyes closed while casting it, which yeah. is a fun bit of flavor. I love that. Yeah. But when he opened up his eyes and everybody was gone, he it took him too long before he figured out that his spell yeah, had killed them all. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And in fact, in this story, it seemed to me almost that Fafford was the brighter one in Lords of Cornwall, and normally you think of, of Mouser as being the quick-witted one. Not that Fafford's ever been betrayed, uh, portrayed as dumb. Right. It's just that he's not as as kind of wily, right? I, I wonder if it's just not because he he took the sorcerers at their word that they right. this shouldn't have affected them, and he's really confused. Like, what? you know, they shouldn't be gone. Why are they gone? Their, uh, right. their loincloths are there, and oh my God, there's a pile of dust. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What happened? I, I love when he's casting the spell, Jeff, and, and his eyes are closed, but he wants to open them because he wants to to see how everyone is like looking at him in awe and and kind of this right. this uh, this sort of um, fear. Maybe uh, he wants right. he wants <laughs> to experience that because uh, Mouser is very vain. Um, right, right. And this the section where it says he uh, almost stuttered midway through the uh, the word slurious shop neck. <laughs> I, I stuttered midway through it too. <laughs> Just <laughs> such a good moment. And I like also he's like, hmm, maybe I'm a sorcerer of the first rank because I didn't get this all right. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was I was born to be a great sorcerer, obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely. Now, I guess looking through this, um, Hoy, what are some what are some of the things that you can take away from this in terms of uh, tying this into fantasy role playing game, contemporary or classic? 
Well, um, I mean, clearly Quarmall is a mega dungeon, right? right. Actually literal levels and, and environments change, right? There's the upper Quarmall, which is still underground, but it's still quite different than the lower Quarmall, which is where Gwei holds, you know, holds court. And then there's the castle above ground, right? Um, we often hear about faction play within a mega dungeon, and we're like, how would mm-hmm. we pull that off? How did how can people literally live one flight above each other and be at war with each other? And here's a perfect example of that, right? And there's that literally there's that chamber which is sort of like that no man's land that, you know, that they all sort of just agree to leave alone or just by neglect or whatever. Right. And then there's little uh, bits like the fans operating between levels. So you can sort of like, you know, and finding paths and shortcuts between levels. So I think it is really a prime example of um, a mega dungeon in play. Right. And mm-hmm. then there's pools and that kind of stuff. Like, so there's, there's, there's that and the factions. I Absolutely. Think those are two things that I think really jump out at me. I think those are great observations. And what about the uh, implication from, uh, is it from Shilba or Ningobble that there might be tunnels at the lowest levels of the, the dungeon that lead into realms where elder things might hold sway? Like you might get mm-hmm. lost in those lower levels and find something that you had no intention of finding. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think they pull that off in... Um... I mean, that's how basically you go into the Drow adventures, right? In in mm-hmm. uh, the classic uh, AD and D, and then I know in Rappin' Athak, uh, which is a Swords and Wizardry slash Pathfinder slash Third Edition mm-hmm. module from Frog God Games. That's a, a, a notorious mega dungeon. But once you get down to the bottom of that, you can go into this mythic underworld that's um, Cyclopean Deeps, I think, which is by Matt Finch. And if you don't have anything prepared, then pull up Veins of the Earth. Exactly. And roll with go. that. Right. Right. Now, Josh, I have a question for you. So let's say you're going to play third edition D&D or Beckme, and you wanted to have kind of a Lankmar game. What about Dungeons and Dragons doesn't work for d and I'm sorry, what about Dungeons and Dragons doesn't work for Lankmar? Oh, okay. Um, I, you know, I, I think that my expectation would be that uh, you would have to limit the the player characters to um, a, a narrow range of, of races and classes in third edition. Um, it, yep. it strikes me that maybe Beck me is more suited for uh, Lankmar. And I know that uh, dungeon crawl classics has a Lankmar box uh, box set and uh, a guide to playing games in Lankmar. Um, and I, I believe that they also kind of narrow the, the focus of, Um, well, they have a, uh, set of rules that sort of encourage narrowing the focus of the player characters. And so I think that's something that doesn't really work. Um, you know, having, uh, uh, tieflings and, and gnomes and things running around, uh, in Lankmar. Dragonborn. Right. And And clerics. clerics, Yeah. (laughs) Specifically clerics. (laughs) Although there's definitely priests. There's definitely tons of priests, but we're we're never, we're never told if they have any. they don't have special magics that wizards don't have. Right, right. Seems to be the general trend, right? In Swords and Sorcery is that there's generally not a non-human protagonist, right? It's it's more into high fantasy or later on that we have these sort of uh, non Yes. Absolutely. And even, even in high fantasy, they tend to, I mean, you know, I guess hobbits aren't humans, but for the most part, they, if we do have non-humans, they tend to be kind of side characters. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we've got Hugi the dwarf hanging out with Holger, but Hugi the dwarf is rarely, that kind of a character is rarely the protagonist. Right. right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you guys was uh, in regard to Stardock, how do you feel 
you know, you, you could sort of boil that story down to uh, one party of adventurers pursuing another party of adventurers up this mountain. And it's a race to the top, right, to get the, the treasure. Um, would you ever consider running a game that was players against the environment, um, i.e. climbing Stardock versus players versus the, the dungeon and the traps and layouts and monsters that they would expect to find in a dungeon? Right. Um, what would it be? It could be a literally a vertical hex crawl. So where you would do instead of like, like or maybe I guess a more popular term would be a point crawl for in this case, because rather than mapping like specifically a spot in the mountain, you could say, okay, I roll here and this is the hazard you now encounter, a potential avalanche or, or something like that. But what you couldn't do or shouldn't do is just make it literally a hundred climbing right. tracks. Right. That would become very tedious. Because that's one of the mechanics that drives me nuts about fifth edition is this idea of like, okay, well, if you get five successes, you now win this chase or something. And I'm like, I don't want my my players to just be rolling a 20 side over and over again. Right, that's right. not compelling gameplay for me. Right, right. And I think, um, uh, but actually you, you said something there though, uh, Josh, that since you mentioned dungeons and traps, it's actually not necessarily that different conceptually than say Tomb of Horrors. It's just that we're stringing it out as a, an exterior environment. Here's a danger you have to encounter. You get to a certain point. Now you have to figure out, like, literally, do I have to climb down again and sideways and up again? I can't go up because it's sheer or something like that, right? So you could actually reframe it in that way in your mind, right? Because there's still problems to be solved. Because Tomb of Horrors is notorious for not actually having that many monsters in it. It's just problems mm-hmm. to be solved, right? So... Um, how much mileage you get out of that obviously depends a lot on the kind of players you have and if they're willing to go with that. Because some players will just want to kick over the table at that kind of game. And some players will totally be into it and like, hmm, and really start planning it as if they were planning an expedition mm-hmm. or something. Um, so, I, I saw that there is a, a Jeffrey Catherine Jones um, uh, illustration of a map of Stardock in one of, I don't know what edition of the book this is from, um, but I've got an image of it I can send to you guys. And on it, it's uh, it labels the um, the white waterfall, the obelisk Polaris, the the grand pennon, the petty pennon, uh, all of the the track that Fawford and Gray Mouser took to to reach the uh, the heights that they reached on Stardock, and it just made me wonder, like how what if Stardock were a module? How would you go about how would you go about incorporating it into your game? Well, one thing I can address is I think if I wanted to do the competing adventurers climbing up Stardock, then I would definitely want to do something that I had a lot of fun playing in myself, which is at uh, North when I went to North Texas the year before last, I was in two com- there were there were two competing tables playing in Black Powder Black Magic, and what the judges would do is every time the table would enter a new room. He'd like run over to the judge and whisper where we are and vice versa. So that when, the, when we did end up in the same place at the same time, then we would like PVP it out. It would be fun to have kind of two competing tables with two different judges running something like that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, so too. Um, and even you if could you trigger did- avalanches on each other. Right, right. Yeah. And even if you didn't do that, um, two things jump to mind. Even if you're, if you're li- more limited in scope, in terms of not having two tables or two judges. Um, one is this term, OSR term now, um, from Janelle Jackways, of Jackwaysing a dungeon, in other words, making there a multiple pathways to the same objectives. And mm-hmm. in fact, in this case, they chose this face, but they had a chance to pick the other face that the other guys climbed, but that's that Fafford said, oh, it snows and rains, like, you know, 
nine days out of 10 on that side. So we're going to go on this side, right? But the players would still have had that choice. And then again, treat these environmental hazards, uh, not as fixed points on Stardock, but as random encounters. Oh, right? okay. Right. So that it comes up at this point, or you fail this check, I will roll a random encounter. And this is what it is now. This is the, you know, loose snow over here, or this is the, you know, the invisible furry manta flying by. <laughs> right? Sure. So and here's a snow serpent. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, those are one of two ways I think, I mean, but definitely if you have the wherewithal to do that, like two competing tables, I, I mean, I can't imagine anything more fun than that. So <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, Hoy is somebody who's familiar with DCC Linkmar, um, which I'm personally a big fan of. Yeah. How well do you think DCC Linkmar has succeeded at turning the feel of the Fafferty Greenmaster stories into playable fantasy gaming? Um, well, it's interesting you bring that up because, and to tie back to your word of the week, which is uh, Benison's. Um, so as you mentioned, I've mentioned before, I'm playing a Yoon Suin game, but I decided to just try out the DCC Lankmar rules in there. Um, so Yoon Suin is a uh, non-rule specific sort of, f- not Far East, sort of more Nepal... Burma you're playing or you're running it? Uh, running, but I, uh, okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Uh, so, <clears throat> um, so, uh, but my point being that I uh, think that uh, as you say, so we've we've chopped out the, the cleric class at least as a playable class, um, but with the Benisons and Dooms, you can sort of without getting to the depths of, or should uh, that sounds uh, derogatory, but without getting into, um the sort of involvement of a, a serious point build like you might do in 3.5 or Pathfinder or one of those systems or even Savage Worlds or something like that. Uh, you can still kind of customize your characters a little bit and give them some more flavor with the Venices and Dooms. And so my mm-hmm. players have done that. And, you know, most of them took a roll, but I, I let them spend an extra point of, you know, extra points of luck if there was a... Real particular- quick, Josh, do you know what the Venices and Dooms are? Uh, I, I can guess, but I don't know uh, precisely... So essentially, if you were talking about in GURPS terms, there would be advantages and disadvantages. Okay. Uh, Bennies, I guess. I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar with Savage Worlds, but okay. basically a little bit extra. It's not, nothing that's a game breaker, but a yeah. little bit extra that gives you some flavor. So for example, there's no multi-classing in, in Dungeon Crawl Classics, but in order to give Fafford some thiefing skills or what you could be uh, skilled in the criminal arts. Uh, on the converse, if you were really thinking of um, the Mouser as a thief but we know that he's one of the most skilled swordsmen in Lankmar. You could give him, uh, you know, um, it's not weapon master, but something similar to that. Um, martial training, uh, which would allow him at least with his rapier and his, his Dirk to be the equal of anyone else, but maybe not with, you know, uh, a broadsword, right? Uh, or conversely, he knows a spell or two, but he's not a full on uh, magic user. So, and then there's some that are much more, not even game mechanical that are more social that are built in. Like one of my characters, or one of the players in my game is being blackmailed. And so then we can sort of narratively determine why he's always poor and why he's being blackmailed. In this case, it's because he's a, a drug mule and doesn't really realize it. <laughs> <laughs> and someone's caught him doing these deliveries. Uh, so, and so he's getting blackmailed for that. Um, so it's not, it's not full on drifting into um, story game or point build territory, but it does allow a little bit of customization and that's kind of important, once, especially once you've gotten it down to just three core classes, because a lot of people would feel um, hemmed in um, if they don't have, you know, a strong sense of what 
the breadth of a fighter class or a thief class could be. Um, and I think DCC is particularly successful in making, for example, the fighter class interesting in ways that it's not in some other games. That's why you have a plethora of fighter subclasses. But when DCC, you have this deed die, which lets you do spectacular stuff, but you don't have to buy a feat chain, right? To, to like specifically say, oh, my warrior, you know, at the third level, he's great with, you know, this sword. And at the fifth level, he gets an extra bonus for, you know, I don't know exactly. Again, I don't, I'm not totally familiar with third edition and its derivatives, but that's the point. Um, so it allows you a little bit more narrative freedom. You can you can say what you're doing. That's kind of cool. Um, so I, as far as I go, I still have to d- dive in, but I do think that that Michael Curtis and the Goodman Games team have done a really good job of keeping of making it portable to a familiar set of rules, rather than creating something entirely new for mm-hmm. that game. You know, I agree, and I think the spell stipulations are one of the most flavorful piece of contemporary fantasy writing I've seen in a long time as well. Because with spell stipulations, you roll on a table to find out what are the things that you need to accomplish to to cast this spell. And I know that Gary Gygax tried for that in the early versions. We we have uh, some spells have material and somatic and verbal components. Other spells have um, very specific material components that you're supposed to gather. You need to have 10,000 gold pieces of crushed ruby. You need to have a Pegasus feather, something like that. Nobody paid any attention to any of that stuff when we were when we were playing. Right. Uh, but rolling on a table that says that you have to have your eyes closed when you cast the spell right. is something very small and simple, but can bring a lot of flavor into the game because maybe you're in a situation where you really want to cast this spell, but it would not be smart of you to have your eyes closed during this whole during <laughs> during this period of time. Right. And in fact, that yeah, that very specifically came up in uh, last week's game because they were in a, a battle, and then one of my characters had lost his uh, magic missile spell. And on top of that, the stipulation was that uh, it was only at full strength in complete darkness. Oh, <laughs> and they were already in this battle, but it, they were kind of beat up. And so he decides to spell burn by burning himself with his torch, thereby putting it out, and then being able to cast a spell at full strength plus a spell burn. Nice. So, <laughs> but then the rest of the battle was in complete darkness, and so then the, all the other characters were at a disadvantage. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I like it. That's so, awesome. Um, and I think also, as you say, as more flavor, and, and again, I don't want to um, to say denigrate. 5th edition, but 5th edition seems to me with this spell slot idea a little bit more like uh, some of the modern um, uh, computer role-playing games, right? Mm. Where you specifically have... Because even though you had spells, um, it, you know, spells were fire and forget in you know earlier editions of D&D, it wasn't so as flexible as a spell slot thing. It was like an inventory item, right? Inventory item, inventory item, right? And I don't think you necessarily have to predetermine which spells you have memorized. Um, Unlike in first edition, we definitely had to like spend a lot of time pouring over. Say, this is the spell I'm going to cast today, right? Yeah, yeah. I haven't read fifth edition, but that's the impression that I get as well. Yeah, and in people, if I'm wrong, please let us know because again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, bag on anyone's edition unnecessarily. So, and what, what about you, Sounds Jeff? Good. Any other gaming or or Luke, anything that particularly gaming wise that say, oh, I really need to bring this into my game. I do have one that I'd like to throw in, which is that I love one of the things I love about the Fafford and Graymaster stories is that we don't have a whole book full of monsters thrown at the characters. Mm -hmm. But when we do, like we've got our giant snow serpent, which is cool. Like it's just a giant snake covered in white fur (laughs) uh, that spits venom. Um, It's it's interesting. It's fun. It works. But I loved I loved the goat stampede. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, they get to the top of a mountain and there is a giant goat stampede and it's, it's just fucking goats. But like, it's, it's, that would be a terrifying thing to encounter when you, when you're exhausted and you've climbed up to this giant plateau. Mm-hmm. That felt like a and, random encounter, didn't it? Right. right. It did. Yeah, exactly. Especially an AD&D random encounter because herd animal right. is one of the options on the encounter tables in the old AD&D. Right. It's like 10 to 100 or something like that. Right. <laughs> exactly. You roll, you, you roll a percentile die and okay. Yeah. You just encountered roll the die 97 mountain goats. Right. Right. And, and clearly that was not a balanced encounter. Right? right. So they had to use their wits and climb up onto that rock and get out of the way. And he still had to yep. chop a couple down with his ax. Um, so I think that's, yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, and the threats, threats are very real. They're sort of human. I mean, and that's the, the take I get from sword, sword and sorcery, even Conan stuff. It's, it's at the edge of human, but it's not way, way beyond human. Most of the time, the threats that he's dealing with, right? He's, if he's fighting five guys, it's a big deal, right? He's going to win, but he's going to take some nicks along the way. And Fafford and the mouse also know a couple of times when they need to run or they're dealing with too many people. Right. Right. Um, so that kind of scale, without it seeming like, oh, they're only third-level characters or it's low-level play. And I mean, these are clearly the two best, you know, adventurers in Lankmar, but there's still limits. But not the two best yeah. thieves in Lankmar. No, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're the best at getting stuff. They're the worst at keeping stuff. Yeah, acquisitions, so, yes. Uh, yeah, right, right. Fencing, oh, and that's not. another thing I would throw out there. Selling your treasure can be a whole adventure. Right. Yeah. Right. And you don't get the XP until you get the, you know, the treasures unloaded. And, yep. and just finding ways to keep your characters kind of poor and thus incentivized to keep adventuring without it just being like a, a jerk-ass move on the, on the DM's part is always a challenge, right? Sure. So that's why they add the, the domain game, I guess. But not everybody wants that, right? Right. Exactly. All right. So, Josh, we are running out of time. Do you have any kind of last bit of wisdom you want to impart upon us and our listeners or a last thing you want to talk about? Um, Well, I would urge everyone to avoid the following list of diseases. The Black Plague, the Red Plague, the Boneless Death, the Hairless Decline, the Slow Rot, the Fast Rot, the Green Rot, the Bloody Cough, the Belly Melts, the Ague, the Runs, and the Footling Nose Drip. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's great advice vaccinate especially all at once <laughs> vaccinate yes <laughs> um, right and uh you know i i had a great time talking to you guys about these stories i uh i feel like because these stories are longer and uh, a bit more dense we could spend a ton of time kind of talking about all of the different things like uh it seems like uh Gwei had psionics Right. We didn't talk about psionics. Right. Um, right. True. Good point. <laughs> so, um, no, there, I, I had a, a blast talking this out with you guys. And uh, I really appreciate you guys having uh, all three Chromecasters on. This This has been a blast. In a row. In a row. Right. Well, we, you know, we were... Uh... We were considering just creating a sort of Lord of the Fly scenario and just inviting one of you guys on. <laughs> 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 it, it would it would be much like uh, Hasjarl and Gwei. We all would have killed ourselves, brought down the, brought down the roof of Chromecast Tower, and uh, right, there, there would have been nothing. <laughs> That's awesome, Josh. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks so uh, much for having Josh. <laughs> okay, so before we go away, Hoy, do, is it okay if I talk about our Patreon? Yeah, big news. All right, big news. So as of today, today being the day that we're recording this, which is March 22nd, we have a Patreon. And our Patreon, you can go ahead and support us. We would love that. 
the goal here is we're looking to improve the, 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 the sound of the show, get better equipment, get better gear. Uh, we're looking to expand our outreach so that we can do um, sponsored posts on Twitter and boosted posts on Facebook and things like that to get the word out there more. Uh, also, you know, recoup some of our costs and have an opportunity to really engage with our base more. And with our new Patreon, at just the $1 per month level, we're calling that the lurker at the threshold. <laughs> and if you want to be a lurker at the threshold for a dollar a month, you get access to our Patreon feed. And one of the things that's cool about our Patreon feed is we record these episodes. I almost always edit them the very same day. And then they just sit there for weeks, collecting dust until it's the right time to post it. Not anymore. If you join our Patreon feed at the $1 a month level, you will get to listen to the episode as soon as it's edited. You don't have to wait until we've posted it and made it available for the public. So for example, this episode that we're recording right now will probably be available to patrons on Sunday, uh, which is in two days. Right. Uh, but if you're not a patron, you're going to have to wait like three weeks before this goes up. Sorry, guys. That, that's how it works. And for most of you, you're hearing this after it's already out, so it doesn't really matter. But you get the gist about kind of how that generally works for the future. We're also going to start giving shout outs to our patrons uh, on the episodes. We don't know how many we're going to do yet, but it's going to be like a, if you're a dollar a month member, you get one name thrown in the hat. If you're a five dollar a month member, you get five names. If you're a ten dollar a month member, you get ten names. But since we only created this Patreon just a couple hours ago, we have a very small pool to draw from, but we would like to thank uh, David Willems, who was our very, very, very first patron. Thank you. Uh, we'd also like to thank uh, Raphael Beltrame, who is one of our uh, most constant supporters. We really appreciate that. Uh, we'd also like to thank Joseph. And who do we have here? We also have Noah Green. And then one more we have, this isn't a person's name. I guess this is probably their online handle, but SithCon. Thank you, SithCon, for your support. Um, and one last thing that I want to throw out there is that at the $10 a month per level, we're going to be launching the Virtual Book Club. And what that means is you're going to get to sit down with either Hoy or I or both of us and actually chat with us about the book an hour or two before we record the actual episode. So it's going to be in real time. You're going to affect what we're thinking about and the, the, the tone of the conversation potentially uh, by being involved in that conversation with us prior to us recording. And the beautiful thing is at noon Eastern Standard Time, you might be in the virtual book club. Then at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we might record the episode and by like 7 p.m., I might already have it posted on the Patreon feed. So you have an opportunity to really kind of feel more involved and engaged with what's happening here. Uh, right, that right. is my pitch for the Patreon. Right, right. And I want to emphasize, uh, because we know that so many of us, so many of you have just got, given us good feedback that no matter what, the feed, the main podcast feed was always going to be free. Always. You're always going to have these episodes, right? So this is... A little extra, and we know that sometimes it's asking a lot in this day and age. But really, you, the episodes we will still be there. We appreciate you no matter what. So please, you know, keep on responding to us, uh, you know, on Twitter or emails at appendixn at gmail.com or at appendix underscore n on Twitter. Um, 
please rate us on the various podcasters of choice, uh, podcatchers of choice, because again, it helps people find us. And just let us know how we're doing and you know what, what else we can do. Thank you so much. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>